Hello and welcome to Director's Cut, the Jordan Saul edition. I'm Zachary Strand out of Boulder, Colorado, and today's guest is Jordan Saul from The Ohio State University and North Broadway United Methodist Church. Hello, Jordan. Hello. Happy to be here. So some context for our listeners. Uh, You're currently the professor of practice for choral music education at OSU, as well as the conductor for Women's Glee Club and University Course. But you also serve as the director of music at North Broadway United Methodist Church in Clintonville. Yes, that's right. And uh, prior to Ohio State, you served as the associate director for choral activities and professor of music education at the Conservatory of Music at Baldwin Wallace University. That's right. Uh, Your bachelor's degree is from University of Arizona, master's degree from Westminster Choir College. You performed at multiple Ohio music educators conferences, and you taught at the high school level for four years in Arizona. Yes, I did. Oh, you're bringing back so many memories. Any highlights that I'm missing that you'd want to add into that? Oh, no, that's wonderful, because I think that brief history really encapsulates how lucky I've been to get to work with so many different kinds of people at so many levels of musicianship and experience. And places. And places. Yeah, I have moved a lot. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's really lovely. Um, Okay, well, today we're going to talk about what inspires you to do what you do, Mm -hmm. uh, a piece that you would recommend for others to check out and and do with their groups, if it's, you know, the appropriate one, Um, as well as then just what's keeping you curious lately. Ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Jordan, when did you first discover a love for choir and what prompted that? I have, since I was very small, been really fascinated by sounds. Um, And I was a pretty sensitive kid, so sometimes loud sounds would scare me, but beautiful sounds would captivate my attention, like a crow seeing something shiny. I just could not resist it. And my parents saw this pretty early and so made sure that I had some piano lessons. Uh, You know, dad would work extra hours to make sure I had that education in my life, which I'm completely grateful for. And then when I got a little older and we started doing uh, different kinds of music in school, then I wanted to play percussion and flute, but I couldn't do both. So I chose percussion and I was a band kid. And I really thought that I would be a band kid forever until actually my undergraduate days uh, at the University of Arizona. And I started singing under Dr. Elizabeth Shower. And she showed me a model for conductors that I hadn't seen up to that point in my life. And I realized if you're really good at this job, you kind of become invisible if you choose to. Like you really move the light to the performers. And as a percussionist, I loved being in the back. And so when Dr. Shower, you know, kind of started inspiring me to conduct, I thought, well, this is bizarre. I really liked being in the back and now suddenly I'm in the front. But feeling that exchange of energy with singers and seeing bright eyes and lit up faces and watching the connections organically form and then last, I was hooked, completely hooked. So was Dr. Showers, was that uh, a band conductor, choir conductor? No, she was a choral conductor at the University of Arizona. She's actually still there. 
So were you just taking choral class for fun? Yeah, I wanted to sing. I'd always loved singing, but I'd never had voice lessons. And so when I started studying choral music education, I was like, oh, I have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, And so started really diving deep into uh, vocal anatomy and vocal pedagogy and trying to understand how this instrument functioned. And that interest has never left me. I'm totally fascinated by the biology of the human voice. It's astonishing. So I love that, in, like that initial spark. What keeps that spark going on a day to day, especially when things get hard? What what brings you joy and keeps lighting up your eyes? Oh, it's so simple and yet so complex. It's the students. I mean, the craft of music and the art of music are so personally satisfying and could sustain me for a long time. But it is absolutely the human connection with the people that I get to work with between me and them and them amongst themselves that keeps me inspired, keeps me hopeful, keeps me optimistic. And students are never the same. Every year they start to reflect the differences about what's changing in our society and we can choose to adapt to those things or not but they're always showing us what they need and how we can respond to it artistically and that keeps me interested every day that's really fun i really like that i know also for you uh you love to build up both human and music skills in the classroom through your intentional program of quality but underrepresented voices where did that drive come from and how does that look like in your classroom Mm-hmm. Well, it takes a lot of time to build a program under any circumstances. And I'm talking a musical program right now, specifically the choice in repertoire. And I just started noticing, actually, it came from the needs of students that I love Brahms and Bach and Bartok. Oh, I love Bartok. But I can't expect that my students are going to love everything I show them unless they also have that personal connection to it. And so I always like to hedge my bets by having things that the students can link into. And then once they're linked in, I can start to expand their world and understanding a bit um, and maybe their experience of different kinds of music. But When I was always looking for those pieces that students could relate to, I kept running into the same walls for the pieces that I knew. And I thought, there's a hole in my education so far in showing me how to find works that aren't just sort of dropped into my lap at conventions or at reading sessions, things like that. So what are the skills that I'm missing? So I was curious and just started looking around, like, where are the women? Where are the black women? Where are the BIPOC women? Where are they historically? And that extra question led me to amazing resources that I hadn't been exposed to previously, but it also took a lot more time because I had to discover those roads that other, I didn't form the roads. Other people that had these questions long before I did were wise enough to, you know, start to make resources available, but it's still harder to do. Since uh, you've gotten to travel some of these roads, do you recommend any signposts people should be looking for of these resources? Oh, absolutely. They're ACDA and state OMEA convention are starting to tilt the lens a bit. It's not always consistent, but it's definitely becoming a more obvious priority. And 
I have a couple of composers that I really love. B.E. Boykin is a big one. She actually commissioned a work for the Women's Glee this year with the dance department. And she, as a Spelman alum, worked with another Spelman alum for the uh, poetry for the work. And then it was conducted by another Spelman alum who is a master's student at Ohio State right now. And the experience of the music and the dance all together was, oh, exceptional, extraordinary. People are still talking about the experience they had as a listening member of the audience. That, that sounds lovely. Is it the artistry that you most treasure when you look back? Is it the connections with people? Is mm -hmm. it the being in the moment of the process of creating this thing that isn't often created? What to you was like the most... Ah, moment of doing that project. Yes, I think it changes for different groups because different groups have different purposes, responsibilities, priorities. But I think the moments where I have felt the most inspired and solid in the knowledge that I'm doing the right thing at the right time is where there is space for ambiguity in a performance where the choir may be bringing a big question to the space and the audience can sit in that question. And even if people come out of that with different answers or a different impression, we were able to tolerate that ambiguity together. I think so often people look for an answer because they don't want the question. They want to check it off and move on. And we lose so much nuance and understanding when that's our focus. But in those moments of performance where the choir is presenting something honestly and technically sound and artistically wrought, and the audience is able to enter that story with them, those are the moments that I will never get enough of. No, that's a beautiful moment to all sit in that question together. Mm -hmm. How do you get your group to... I feel like one of the hard problems we're having in our conversations right now in our culture or little subcultures is everyone agreeing on what the question should be. <laughs> How do you get your choir to ask a question as one voice or do you allow that to be ambiguous as well? That is such a good question. And the immediate response that came to mind is that I am absolutely dictatorial in some elements of our work together. And most of those non-negotiable elements have to do with vocal pedagogy, like what the voice is doing, what is good for the voice, what is totally. in the score, you know, black and white notes on a page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I use my, my dictator energy in those areas. And then when it comes to interpretation, because our foundation is really solid, there's a lot of room and energy still available for a lot of different interpretations. I tell the choirs often that I work with that there's no wrong story unless there's not a story. If you don't have an intention for why you're singing a piece, then you're missing something integral to the performance. But your story doesn't have to be the same as mine. Um, and that can be extremely impactful and powerful. Absolutely. I think it's odd growing up in the in the 90s, right? It's the you can be a superstar, your story is important. But there's this actual twist of this idea that anyone can become a pop star mm. versus 
any story has such beauty and worth in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And your story is powerful, not because of whether or not you're famous or if it's popular. Right. But just for it being. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, thank you. You just gave me goosebumps. Oh, appreciate it. Well... I want to hear more about some of the the programming that you do to bring these questions, to bring these ambiguity, or just to bring some darn good music to the room. Yeah. Um, So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to uh, hear about a piece you might recommend. Great. So we ask our guests to tell us about a piece they would recommend for other conductors with their groups. And so, Jordan, this may not fit every group. We know that. Um, but I want to hear what is a piece that you would recommend? You're like, I love this. Yes. You got to check this out. And if it works for your group, you got to go for it. What would that be? So this was really difficult, Zach, I have to say, to prep for this and to just pick one. There were so many in the maybe pile. I sort of just had to close my eyes and point a finger, but I'm really happy where it landed because there's so much valuable and wonderful repertoire out there. Sometimes it's not easy to find, but if you take some time to dig, you're going to find real gems out there. But the piece that I landed on is Hymn of Axiom by Vienna Tang, and this one specifically arranged for SSAA by Robin Salkeld. And for this piece, what are we looking for for programming, both in terms of the group, but also where in the concert might it go? Uh, what, what type of concert might it go with? Those type of questions. Yes. Okay. So... Some technical considerations. It is a cappella, though there is a um, reduced piano score in the score itself. So I suppose under some circumstances, you could absolutely use that if your choir needed that support. I mean, better to use the support and still do the piece than abandon it because you don't want to use that support. At least that's my opinion. No, I like that. It's a good idea. So this is a, a hymn setting, but it has some twists. So what we normally associate with hymns is homophonic motion, often triadic harmonies, and some sort of divine inspiration. And all of those elements exist here. But the twist is that axiom is a a digital online data collector. And the voice of this hymn is the data collector itself, or the AI here, singing in glory to those whose data it's harvesting. So there is a serious level of spook here. So if this is basically what Neo heard in the Matrix, pretty probably much. all around. Yes. Him. Oh, good. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So it. it's it's there's definitely a spook factor, which I'm totally into, but it's also excruciatingly beautiful. So it's very satisfying to sing because there's an interesting story. It's very relevant and it's beautiful. Um, As far as the piece itself, it is very soul-fedgeable. There are some dissonances that are characteristic for the voice, especially later in the piece. 
But it starts off in a way that's quite consonant. And so the hook at the beginning, your students are likely to have a good amount of success with. And then by the time it gets more difficult at the end, they'll already have a good story in mind. So they'll understand the difficulties maybe on a different level. So this is a piece you would approach from front to back. I would. Yes. Uh, And there's a couple reasons why. Um, The very beginning, like I mentioned, is very hymn-like. There's a hint of dissonance right around measure 20 on the word known. Which starts to tag something in the listener's mind that maybe this isn't exactly what I thought that it was. And the text immediately following that first hint of dissonance is leave your life open You don't have to hide. Someone is gathering every crumb you drop, mindless decisions, and moments you long forgot. I mean, (laughs) okay, call me out, why don't you? And then a couple measures later, the tempo increases. There's a crescendo on the word all. And that word all is a really deeply dissonant chord. And that's where it really tunes into the machination, the digital uh, personality of this piece. And it starts sounding like individual computer lines that are singing together. It's magnificent. Do you have uh, a deep appreciation for technology? Oh, I do. And actually, when we talk later about what I'm curious about, that's what I'm talking, I will be talking about. Because I, I, I hear your passion when you're talking about this. And I feel like if I was one of your students, I would be very excited and all in. I'm thinking, though, if I am a, you know, 48-year-old who hasn't had my coffee yet and I'm driving into work listening huh. to this right now. Yeah. But it's because I'm tired and I'm groggy, totally. you know, and I don't get tech. How would you talk to that person to say, oh, but wait? I would say you don't have to. I think the hymn setting, especially at the beginning, is really familiar. It sounds like music that we know and is in our bones and in our blood. And in so many ways, I think a piece like this is a perfect bridge because it takes what you already know. It takes your expertise and it starts to expand it in a way that can be comfortable. It doesn't feel like you're diving into the deep end, more like you're just wading toward it. And I'm someone who's not very good with technology. um, So I actually like that. And it'd be a great chance for me to talk to my students and go, can you tell me about this AI? Like what, what's the deal? What are you guys into? Like, what does this speak to you about? Be a cool opportunity for me to be curious and learn. So thank you. That's really helpful. Absolutely. And honestly, getting your students interested in technology I'm sorry for this terrible analogy, but it's like shooting fish in a barrel. They are so in. It's their life. It's their language. They know it. Um, It is not difficult for them to talk about. So if you don't want to talk about it, ask them questions. They will fill it in. That's great. It's amazing how we can do that with most people, right? (laughs) Right. We just just ask people questions. A lot comes to light. We get to grow. It's true. So tell me more, though. Tell me more about this piece. Yeah, sure. So I think some of the really important considerations musically and technically are 
because it is written a cappella, even if it's not performed that way, and because of the way the harmonies line up, the clarity of pitches is super important. So especially for soprano, soprano, alto, alto settings, matching the registration that singers are using can be super important for intonation. So there's a lot of very low alto notes, and they're going to be in their chest voice out of necessity for a good portion of this. But there are a couple of places that for intonation reasons, they're going to need to leap up. And I think, at least in my experience teaching this piece, the altos have needed some coaching to make sure they have a good understanding of what it means to shift into a higher register to match and a good uh, aural awareness of the room around them. I love this. I want to get into the challenges specifically. So let's just take a second. We're going to listen to a segment here, kind of get our ears attuned to the piece. Great. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk about a specific challenge to attack. Okay. So now let's talk about some of these challenges and what you have found to be successful of, oh, we navigated this way. Absolutely. So again, speaking about registration specifically with soprano, soprano, alto, alto setting, I'm not a fan of straight tone generally, although I do understand why people default in that direction because the clarity of the harmonies is much easier to achieve when there's not the amplitudes of vibrato to contend with. But I think... In most instances of singers that I work with, asking them to sing straight tone does not lead to their best vocal health. So if I'm to, uh, I'm thinking if I'm translating that, I'm here in uh, with the SSA, it's straight tone. You don't have the old, the, all the warbling going across, all those tones hitting each other. Right. Um, so that's a little bit cleaner. You can kind of get that very uh, certain sound we're kind of used to hearing from the last 20 years. Um, but the vocal production side, which you really dug into, um, that can be problematic. Is Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, singers get tired. They develop bad habits. They tend to sing off the breath. And there's just not as much vibrancy in the sound itself. Also, there can be major intonation issues. But with vibrato, there can be a real uh, muddiness in the sound. It can be really hard to tell what the harmonies are. And when the story of the music isn't clear because the technique isn't great, then the audience has less of an impactful experience. So that's not ideal. No. And I think um, for singers, at least those that I work with now, helping them understand how to match the amplitudes of their vibrato rather than taking it out altogether is a really great way to achieve a beautiful and healthy sound. It does take more time on the front end, but the experience on the back end is, is worth it. It sounds like that's something you could address really well in skill builders or warm-ups at the beginning of the rehearsal out of context and apply elsewhere. Absolutely. Do you have something you like to do for that? Oh, absolutely I do. So we follow the same basic uh, warm-up sequence every day, although the exercises change based on the repertoire that we're going to be doing. So the first thing is always something with the body. So bringing the singers into their physical selves, into the space. And this can be just quick stretches, sometimes, you know, uh, little massages. 
Every once in a while, if they're really socially tired, maybe the body exercises checking in with somebody near to them. And we do those sorts of things throughout the rehearsal too, but sometimes it's important to have a meaningful moment that's dedicated to that. I love that. After body is breath, because breathing is the singer's specialty, especially the exhalation. And the more understanding and practice they have of that expansion and understanding how the expansion continues even as the breath leaves the body, helps them to sing on the breath and with a supported vocal tone. Of course, it's never guaranteed, right? Every conductor knows that as many people in the room are as many interpretations of your instruction. And so we can be as clear as possible and still have, uh, let's call them artistic interpretations of our <laughs> message. Okay. But the more practice, the better potential results you have. Okay. So we have body and breath. And then phonation, something like lip trills or humming, something to just get the vocal cords, uh, vocal folds operating in a manner of singing, but also to get the brain to operate in a manner of singing. So these phonation exercises sort of bridge between speaking and singing and focus the singers onto what the task at hand is going to be for the next hour or so. Well, I love this because, you know, the, originally we're talking about just amplitude of vibrato. Mm -hmm. But if we can't make a good sound, it doesn't matter what, no, what that's going to be. So it's just, true. I'm just reminding myself as we're going through of where this is leading. And so, I'm getting there. Oh, you're, I you're promise. doing great. Yeah. You're doing great. But okay. I, love, I love this sequence and really paying attention to the whole student walking in as much as we'd love for them to leave it at the door. Their bodies aren't being left at the door, and we got to get those back on track, back online. So Absolutely I love the sequence. So please do. keep going. Oh, wonderful. So after phonation, um, it depends on the time of day. If it's a very early warm-up, we may do a couple extra exercises just to get, get things moving, brush the dust off. Later in the day, though, after phonation, I go right into resonance. And these exercises start kind of in the middle of the voice. They're generally a kind of funny sound that people are making. Uh, one of my favorites is nya, 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 nya. So it's super nasal. It's really up to the front of the face. It's not really meant to be beautiful. It's more meant to build sensation for the singers. So just five, four, three, two, one. Yep. Do you go uh, up? down, half steps, whole steps, do you just bounce around up and down? I tend to ascend first. And for uh, treble voices, I want to make sure that we move the resonance into the head voice. Because if we start in the middle of the voice, a lot of times singers will connect resonance with chest voice or pressing. So if you can connect that uh, forward resonance to the upper register, it tends to be more successful. And then always ending resonance exercises with a side down to relax the larynx. If it's um, SATB, then I will listen for the basses and the tenors to have to switch into falsetto. And once that happens, then I know that we can kind of stop and then sigh down again. But I'm listening for that shift in registration so they do not link resonance to just their lowest, most powerful sound. Mm, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then after resonance is range builders. So range extensions that will help them get up, will help them get down, and will just show the movement through the voice. And we know, because this is what we do, that high notes are a function of skill and mental fortitude. You have to be brave enough to try, right? Absolutely. And Absolutely. then when you're singing high notes with good technique, the first few probably super scary and they probably don't sound very good 
Because if you try to control high notes with the musculature, then you build tension around those pitches and then intonation suffers, overall technique suffers. But to sing them openly takes guts. So to practice it as often as possible in a low stakes way, like with warm up, so it's just something that happens all the time, tends to help build that mental fortitude that they can then apply when those moments are necessary in the repertoire. Following range activities is um, something stylistic that I'll pull from the piece itself. Maybe it's just a solfege exercise moving through the harmonic progression that's germane to the piece. Maybe it's a difficult rhythmic passage that we're just going to practice in isolation. And usually the students don't even know at first that that is pulled from the rep. They're just practicing it um, because that's what they're doing. The final exercise is always a tuning exercise, and it could be, you know, sing an A all together. It could be build a triad here, but something to specifically shift their attention from self to whole. Love that. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we'll dive into the repertoire. But the amplitude of the vibrato really comes into play in the tuning exercise. So I don't touch on vibrato for a lot of those exercises, unless it's specifically stylistic for that piece, but it will always come into play for tuning. And as students are singing maybe one singular pitch in the room, we will adjust the shape of the mouth, we'll adjust the position of the tongue, and they'll breathe whenever and come back in whenever. I'll have them doing something physical, some sort of kinesthetic reinforcer, and then mention verbally how they're going to match with the voices around them. Not to change what they're doing, but to find a way that works in the space. And an important part of this also is voicing. Where are they standing? Who are they standing next to? But that may be a whole nother conversation between you and me, Zach. Do you have any recommendations for some of those kinesthetic awareness movements that you would have them do to become aware of the amplitude? I absolutely do. Yes. And I think with kinesthetic reinforcers that... Having one, even if it's not the best one, is so important. So if it should come to your mind immediately to have the body somehow moving when you're singing these exercises, and it doesn't matter what it is, just get them used to moving, and then you will start to see how those kinesthetic reinforcers really um, uplift and support the technique that you're building. But specifically for amplitude of vibrato, super simple. Have the students show with their hand how fast they think their individual vibrato is. Have them show with their hand how slow they can make it. And then ask them to show with their hand and their voice if they can match the vibrato of the people around them. So they're not trying to sing straight tone. This tends to make them have to breathe more often because they're using a lot of air when they're singing, which is what we want, right? Great. <laughs> yeah, it can surprise them, though, that they're having, you know, they're running out so quickly. Um, but having something so visual and so simple helps them build an aural awareness that could otherwise be really difficult to tap into. Perfect. So now they have this awareness. Where was a spot in this piece, this hymn specifically, where you're like, oh, and we dialed into that right here? Yes. So clarity of diction is also a major consideration here. And that starts to crystallize when the vibrati are matching. Vibrati? Vibrato? What's the plural of vibrato? I don't even know. 
That's a great question. Huh. Well, you said vibrati. I went right with you. Right? So I was, I, I don't know if that's correct, but in my brain, it was for that okay, moment. Okay. So great. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Oh, how funny. And I have something else to learn today. Um, letter G in Hymn of Axiom is such an extraordinary moment in the piece. It is arguably the most climactic, and it happens right after we have this moment where the text is, oh, how glorious, and it sounds so familiar and yet off-putting the way that the harmonies are stacked here because it sounds almost like a hymn, but there's like one pitch that's like unsettling and just won't let you rest in these sonorities. And oh, how glorious, how glorious. And here's, here's the kicker. A brand new need is born. Now we possess you. You'll own that in time. So spooky, but it is so arrestingly beautiful. And during the glorious, we have the combined challenge of clarity of diction and matching amplitudes of vibrati. Okay, let's. See. I love it. Commit. Okay, we're gonna. Commit I'm gonna commit to it. it. Okay. I love it. That's great. So G L O R I O U S. We have a difficult consonant compass combination to start the word and then we have a really big r right in the middle of it and we know r is one of those consonants that affects the vowel and therefore can affect the intonation and then we end on a sibilant s sibilant being just the sound that it is um it's not a neutral sort of sound it's one we have to manage or make a decision about Mm -hmm. so you have three major pieces in one word and a harmony that's supposed to indicate that you are unsettled. So if the harmony is obscured from the vibrato or the text is not clear, then a part of the story is lost. Absolutely. So the first thing that we did here for letters F and G, where the soprani are sort of um, up in the tessitura, it's the highest pitches that they sing in the piece, and they stay there for some of the time. Altos are pretty low in the chest voice or in the middle, so they're having to navigate consistently between those registers. First, we sang this on solfege, so learn the pitches. And when they're singing on solfege, it's hard for me, but I do not go after intonation when they're first learning pitches. I try to just stay out of their way knowing that they need to focus on what the actual pitches are before I start honing in. So singing on solfege, figuring out the relationship between the pitches themselves. Curiosity question. Do you do fixed dough, movable dough for this? I do movable dough. And when the solfege stops becoming a helpful tool to them, then I'll transfer to a neutral syllable like do do do. So, and that's actually what we did at letter G. So we did solfege at F because there's some weird things going on there. And then at letter G, switching to do 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 because G is all about the consonant sonorities. You wonder where they came from and why they're there. Um, and by this point, they have a pretty good feel for them if they're at this point in learning the piece. So I want the sopranos to be 
really supported and remembering that their amplitudes are matching. So very simple here. Brought back the kinesthetic reinforcer that we did in the warm-up to the repertoire. They already knew what it was. They were locked in. I mean, it didn't work perfectly the first time. You got to practice. But over time, the way that that very simple motion affected the sound was so good. And when you say very simple motion, you're showing me, but you're talking about waving your hand that's at it. the speed of the vibrato. Yep, Perfect. that's it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They just couldn't see the hand size. Oh, of course not. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you've been able to tell I'm a very kinesthetic person. My it's hands, great. I can't sit, be still. No, it's perfect. Oh. It's per I just want to make sure that I was thinking of the same kinesthetic <laughs> awareness because I like that. And I like having that pre-built in of waving the hand. And you kind of do it at eye level. Is that kind of where you put it? Um, not always, but generally there because then it's easy for people to look across the ensemble and see. It's just a practical consideration for sight lines in that regard. Perfect. Well, let's listen to just a little bit of F so they can kind of hear how it's in alignment, how Solfege works. And we're going to go into G and you'll hear that switch um, and then how they navigated in this moment uh, trying to align these amplitudes and the way that that works. So that was beautiful. Is there um, is there anything else kind of in this realm that you're thinking of that might be connected of another challenge to be aware of? Absolutely. I think the conductor has um, a really important role in this piece to be super consistent in terms of phrasing and gesture because there's a lot of cutoffs that need to be really together and a lot of entrances that need to be really together. I think the challenge of it being a digitally minded piece is the idea that there's a clarity in digital production that is very difficult to recreate in the voices. And it shouldn't sound like a MIDI file, but it should be super clean. And the conductor can really help that by developing a couple gestures in a couple of different places that just stay super consistent so the students know what to look at. And then Use your ability to adjust to the moment in the places where it's super impactful. Don't waste that energy on where the S goes or where the cutoff is. Show them what that's going to look like and then make it look like that every time they see it. I like that. Though I, I'm now just my, my mind is getting excited uh, with imagination. But my background's more musical theater. And I love this idea of the conductor's a character. The conductor is the yeah. AI, not just, you know, matching gesture to sound, but almost embodying this character in a different way of that almost becoming robotic, not in an unartistic way, but in a way that brings to life that that computer drive. You gave me goosebumps again. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And being able to be flexible between those modalities to tell both parts of the story. Ooh, yes. Oh, very fun. Well, thank you. This is this is wonderful. Um, and so we're going to listen to just a little bit more of it. And then when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about what's keeping us curious lately.
All right. Well, thank, this has been so fun. So thank you. I, I am thoroughly delighted in this conversation, but I want to know what you seem to have many, many interests. So I want to know what has been keeping you curious lately. Oh, I do. I love to read. Um, I'm fascinated by social media and how people connect. Basically, how people connect under any circumstances is probably going to get my attention. But recently, I've been really intrigued by AI. And one of the choirs that I work with here, um, the University Chorus, is an SATB group. And we just did a program of all video game music, including two movements of Mozart Requiem. We showed some gameplay from the game Bioshock um, during the Lacrimosa, which audience and students were totally into. We did a medley of Zelda tunes, which I have to admit was pretty selfish because that's my favorite gaming franchise. It just made my heart really happy. And then the last piece we did was Sonia di Volare by Christopher Tin that's from Civilization. And that happens at the specific moment when Leonardo da Vinci launches this flying machine off of Mount Cenciari. And for that piece, we did something so cool that had an outcome that I could not have predicted. So one of the exit slips for our rehearsal one day was that everybody wrote down a couple of words that they would use to describe this piece, which, as you can probably imagine, is very grand. It's very sweeping. It feels epic and powerful. And then I took those words and some lines of the text from the score and input them in AI image generators to just see what would come up. And... It was so cool. Maybe I should have predicted because it was all similar source material, but the images that came up told their own story that was so beautifully related to the music. And so I shared that with the audience. And during the piece, when they sang it, showed all their images, which I don't know much about AI image generation, but I learned a lot. I learned what's possible and what is available. And can, can you just tell me what is AI image generation? What is that even? What are you even talking about? Oh, right gosh. Now? This sounds amazing. Yeah, I may be in over my depth in trying to explain, but I'll tell you what I learned. Um, so I used a program that is free online called Dream by Wombo, W-O-M-B-O. And you go to their homepage and there's a button that says start creating. So you click on it. There's a text box where you can put in any text up to like 200 characters then you choose a style and wait a minute and the artificial intelligence, the AI, creates an image. So it doesn't find you a pre-made image on the no. internet. It creates it. It creates it. And then that image is yours now. It is your art. And I was telling my dad about this and he said, well, aren't artists mad about this? And I thought, you know, that's a good point. It hadn't occurred to me. But I then when I thought about it, it was very similar to kind of my feelings on electronic music, that it's not an instrument for everyone. It doesn't take away the validity of what other artists are creating. It's just simply another way to do it. Um, so there's room for all of it, it at least in my opinion. Um, and the way that the audience and the students responded to this project was sensational. The students were really interested because technology is their bag. They live it. They want to know more about it. And seeing how relevant it was to their lives, frankly, made the rehearsals really fun because I could get them to work really, really hard because they were totally into it. And it was actually theirs. It was actually theirs. Yeah. These were their words and the images were then from them. And Correct. It's pretty powerful. And it did take a long time. 
to create all of the images and to curate what would be shown. You know, not every image made it through. And a couple of themes emerged and I had to decide which of those to go with. And I learned a lot about editing and um, how to use different sorts of files. And I didn't know most of that going in, but I gave myself enough time to be able to learn those things so that it could be something that was really useful for for the artistry of the moment. What generated your interest in AI in general? What got you curious about that? Huh. Honestly? Yeah. TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what about TikTok? Yeah, there were a few people that kept popping up on my algorithm that would take these prompts and show what AI created based on their prompts. And I thought, that's really neat. I want to try that out for myself. Did you try it with something other than the coral piece or was that what you tried it out with? No, I tried it over the summer with some of my favorite lines of poetry. And I tried it out with some spooky stuff because those were some of the TikToks that that popped up. They were super spooky. Um and yeah, so I just tried it out with some organic interest first and then realized that this could have some pretty interesting implications in production and performance. That is really fun. I love it. Um, if someone is interested, since you had to learn so much about AI, um, besides visiting the website, which was what again? Dream by Wombo. So they could visit that. Would you recommend any other like, hey, check this out if you're curious about learning about AI? AI? or anything of that nature, like something else that they should, a YouTube video they should watch or just something along those lines? I don't have any specifics. I honestly don't remember everything that I watched toward the beginning, but it was just a quick Google search for AI image generator, what to know. And then I would just click down the sites until I ran out of time or lost interest and, you know, let some of that uh, education permeate my thinking. I love it. Well, thank you. Uh, this has been such a joy. So thank you for your time. We appreciate you so much and uh, wish you well with the rest of the year and all the other fun adventures you're going to have. Who knows what will come next? Thank you so much. This has been Director's Cut. I'm Zachary Strand out of Boulder, Colorado. Audio was edited and mixed by Zach Kester with performance by the Ohio State University Women's Glee Club, directed by Jordan Saul.